It's 25th August 2021. You are listening to Article Read Aloud podcast from K Productions. We have picked two articles, each from the Hindu and Indian Express. The Indian Express article talks about population management in India, and the next article from the Hindu talks about the legal challenges in recognizing the Taliban. Let's hear what these writers have to say. On population, let fat speak. Muhammad Shahid and Manoj Jha. Shahid teaches at Maulana Azad National Urdu University. Jha is a member of parliament. The old slogan, "Ham do, hamare do." वो पांच उनके पच्चीस मीन्स वी आर टू वी हैव टू दे आर फाइव एंड हैव ट्वेंटी फाइव इज प्रॉबली स्टिल पोटेंट इनफ टू अपील टू पॉपुलर परसेप्शन ऑफ अनकंट्रोल्ड मुस्लिम पॉपुलेशन ग्रोथ डिस्पाइट साइंटिफिक एविडेंस टू द कंट्ररी एट अ क्रिटिकल जंक्चर वेन द स्टेट्स एंड यूनियन टेरिटरीज इन इंडिया आर एक्सपीरियंसिंग ए शार्प डिक्लाइन इन फर्टिलिटी राइट्स पॉपुलेशन लॉज आर बैक इन द कन्वर्सेशन so there is nothing on record that these are specifically for muslims the writing on the wall is clear and it is travesty given the facts and figures available from government agencies the recently released empirical data from the national family health survey 2019 to 20 for 20 states and union territories provides that except for three states bihar manipur and meghalaya the fertility rates have gone below the replacement level of 2.1 children per woman the total fertility rates tfr in the union territories of lakshadweep and jammu and kashmir which have sizable muslim populations have gone substantially below the replacement level with 1.4 children per woman in jammu and kashmir this is on account of a modest percentage of women with 10 or more years of schooling 51.3% fewer women marrying before the age of 18 years 4.5% declining infant mortality 20 per 100 life births and more current uses of family planning methods 59.8% in all the seven northeastern states like fertility rates range from 1.1 in sikkim to 1.9 in assam except manipur 2.2 and meghalaya 2.9 in 9 out of 10 states Fertility rates range from as low as 1.3 in Goa to as high as 1.9 in Gujarat. Among populous states, the TFR has gone down to 1.6 children in West Bengal. It is only 1.7 each in Maharashtra, Karnataka, Himachal Pradesh and Andhra Pradesh. In Telangana and Kerala, the fertility rate is getting stabilized at 1.8 children per woman. Even in Bihar, where the TFR is 3, There is a relative decline in fertility from 3.4 in NFHS 2015-16 in NFHS 4 itself as many as 23 states and union territories including all the states in the south region showed fertility below the replacement level in Uttar Pradesh too there is a declining trend in TFR from 3.8 in NFHS 3 2015-16 to 2.7 in NFHS 4 2015 to 16 in west bengal the figures for women with 10 or more years of schooling 
32.9% and women marrying before age of 18 years 41.6% are almost similar to Bihar and worse than Uttar Pradesh. But it seems that West Bengal reached a TFR of 1.6 on account of sharply declining neonatal mortality rate 15.5%, infant mortality rate 22.0% and high contraceptive prevalence rate 74.4%. In brief, the probable fruit of better health facilities and wider contraceptive choices. If an alarm bell is to be pressed, then it is not for population loss but for declining fertility. Replacement level fertility demands heavy investment in education, health and employment opportunity so that the limited working population in the near future is robust and skilled enough. What is needed is a comprehensive policy ensuring dignified living, easy access to quality education, better health services and sound livelihood opportunities. Let the data speak on the need for population loss. The NFHS 4 2015-16 shows interesting linkages of fertility with education and economic well-being. For example, women with no schooling have an average of 3.1 children compared with 1.7 children for women with 12 or more years of schooling. Among Hindus, TFR was 2.1 and among Muslims it was 2.6 that is a difference of 0.5 children. For the same period, the most populous state, Uttar Pradesh, had a TFR of 2.7 in the case of Muslims. It was 0.6 points more than that of Hindus. In some states with high Muslim population, the TFR of Muslims was little more than that of Hindus. 0.6 in West Bengal, 0.8 in Assam and 1.0 in Bihar. For sure, this difference in TFR does not support the chart that Muslim population will overtake Hindus. Lest there be any doubt left, one must understand that there is a steep decline in the fertility of Muslims from NFHS 1, 1992 1993 to NFHS 4, 2015 16 by 1.78 comparison to 1.17 for Hindus. There is also continuous decline in the population growth rate over decades. The decline in decadal growth rate was sharp in census 2011 and sharper for Muslims. The decadal growth rate 2001-2011 for Muslims was 24.6% in census 2011. Though high, it marked a sharp decline from 29.5% which was registered in census 2001. This decline of 4.9% among the Muslims is higher than the corresponding 3.1% decline for the Hindu community whose decadal growth percentage declined from 19.9-1991-2001-2016.8-2001-2011. Before we forget the propaganda of Muslims having more wives, last available figures from census 1971 provide that the, the incidence of polygyny, two or more wives, is highest among Adivasis, 15.25%, followed by Buddhists, 7.9%, Jains, 6.27%. Hindus 5.80% and Muslims 5.7%. Fertility rates are reflective of the progress in respective states on schooling, income levels, decline in neonatal and infant mortality rates and increase in the contraceptive prevalence rate. States with relatively higher TFR like Bihar and Uttar Pradesh need to work on these fronts. Hence any talk of population laws in India at this juncture would at best be like putting the cart before the horse. The next article is from The Hindu. 
The Legal Challenges in Recognizing the Taliban Written by Prapash Ranjan The Taliban's horrific takeover of Afghanistan has triggered a new debate in international law on the issue of recognizing an entity that claims to be the new government of a state. This debate assumes significance because China and Russia, two of the five permanent United Nations Security Council members, have seemingly shown readiness to recognize a Taliban-led government, whereas countries like Canada have opposed it. Questions of recognition do not arise when changes of government within a state occurs when political power is transferred through legal means. However, things are different when the changes of government happens through extra-legal methods like, like hosting the sitting government using unconstitutional means. The Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan squarely falls in this category. Recognition of governments under international law is vital for several reasons. It is important to know who is who the governing authority of the state is, who has the responsibility for effectually carrying out domestic and international legal obligations ranging from pursuing diplomatic relations to the protection of human rights, and so on. Government versus State A salient point to remember is that recognition of the government should not be confused with recognition of the state under international law. As Malcolm Shaw, the celebrated international lawyer, writes, and court begins, a change in government, however accomplished, does not affect the identity of the state itself. Court ends. Thus, in the current debate, the issue is not about the recognition of Afghanistan, whose legal personality remains intact. Whether countries recognize the Taliban regime or not will depend on their political consideration and geostrategic interest, as evident from the Chinese and Russian overtures. However, certain criteria have evolved in international law on deciding the issue of recognition of governments and these need to be prudently looked at. Test in international law. Traditionally, the test used in international law to make a decision about recognition of a new government is that of effectiveness. According to this principle, to recognize a government means to determine whether it effectively controls the state it claims to govern. In other words, it means to determine whether the government has effective control over the state's territory, a majority of the population, national institutions, the banking and monetary system, etc., with the reasonable possibility of permanence. The inherent assumption is that the effective control means the people of the country accept or at least acquiesce to the new regime. If they did not, they would overthrow it. Under this doctrine, it is immaterial how the new government occupied office, whether through civil war, revolution or a military coup. Since there is hardly any doubt that the Taliban now effectively controls Afghanistan, as per this test, it would be rec recognized as Afghanistan's government for international law and thus international relations. A doctrine competing with the effective control theory is that of democratic legitimacy. According to this doctrine, recognition of a government also depends on whether it is the legitimate representative of the people it claims to govern. So governments that capture power through non-democratic means notwithstanding their exercising de facto control over the country should not be recognized by states. The end of the Cold War, the subsequent spread of democracy in the world and the growing demand for universal respect for human rights gave an impetus to this doctrine in the last three decades. This doctrine has led many countries to bestow de jure recognition, means legal recognition on governments in exile in place of governments exercising effective control. Two recent examples can be offered. First, many countries recognized Yemen's Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi government, 
in exile since 2015 on the ground that the rebellious separatists acquired power in Yemen through illegal means. Second, the Nicolas Maduro government in Venezuela is not recognized by several countries due to alleged lack of democratic legitimacy. The Taliban regime, despite exercising effective control over Afghanistan, lacks democratic legitimacy. Thus, it would fail to be recognized as the legitimate representative of Afghanistan if the doctrine of democratic legitimacy is applied. Things would become even more complicated if the Afghan president Ashraf Ghani, who fled the country when the Taliban entered Kabul, were to announce a government in exile. However, some international lawyers like Erika Devet doubt whether the doctrine of democratic legitimacy, notwithstanding its worth and instinctive appeal to the champions of liberal democracy, has become a binding part of customary international law when it comes to the recognition of governments. In other words, governments may rely on the doctrine of democratic legitimacy to refuse de jure recognition of the Taliban. Nevertheless, there is no binding legal obligation on countries to withhold recognition of the Taliban on the ground that it does not enjoy democratic legitimacy. Thus, if Russia and China were to formally recognize the Taliban regime due to its effective control of Afghanistan, it would be consistent with the international law. Options for India Given the Taliban's brutal past, its extremist ideology and profound absence of democratic legitimacy, India is within its right to withhold de jure recognition of the Taliban regime. Nonetheless, it will have to find a way to engage with Taliban, given India's huge investments in Afghanistan and stakes in the South Asian region. India should adopt a clear policy that it will deal with the Taliban simply because it is the de facto government not because it is a legitimate one. This principle should be followed for bilateral relations and also for multilateral dealings such as within the South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation.